trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, this is a program for people who are interested in seeking out the truth. Not that I am the fountain of truth or anything like that. It's not like I have any kind of an unusual clue in life. But I am definitely a dedicated truth seeker and I do the best I can to share information with you in the hopes that it will cause you to think clearly and independently about what's going on around us. I'm of the notion that there's a lot of deception, there's a lot of spin. Maybe you've noticed we're now redefining words <laughs> right on the fly, moving those goalposts to make sure that people stay on topic and stay within the boundaries of the narrative. For some reason, I just have this hunch that that is not being done with our best interests in mind. So if you are someone who is looking for a slightly different slant on what's happening in the world with the understanding that you're free to disagree... I'm not going to take offense if you say, nah, that's that's just doesn't seem to add up. I have no problem with that. All I'm asking you to do is consider it. I'm not insisting you got to believe this or you're a bad person. Of course, you know, we live in a time where the easiest way to be considered a bad person or to be considered an extremist is just to do whatever was normal 50 years ago. I've got some great sponsors who make this program possible. I hope that you'll take the time to get acquainted with them. I have a special part of my daily show notes on my website, thebrianhydeshow.com, as well as links to my sponsors, including hslammo.com, monticellocollege.org, lifesavingfood.com, and garagedoorproservices.com. I'll be telling you more about each one of those as we move along. So I thought we would start today talking a little bit about problem solvers. Since, uh, I don't know if you, I'm not trying to be negative, but if you look around, you'll probably notice we have our share of problems. And of course, we have no shortage of people who are like, step aside, citizen. I'm here to solve these problems for you. But the problem with most people who are there to to, to be problem solvers is that they have been trained to believe that, uh, you know, I'm going to change the world, but I'm going to do it through the only way that counts, and that's through public policy. Think about every commencement speech that you've ever sat through. I promise you there has been some variation of change the world, go out there and change the world. But the problem is, too often we're taught that only changing the world through public policy is the only change that counts. This is why so many young idealists, you know, get into politics. Well, I wanted to make the world a better place, so I became a politician. I'll just let that sink in for a second. How's that working out for us? Now, it's not that there isn't a real need for positive changes in the world, but the problem is that any change undertaken by politicians or other agents of the state is based, at least at some level, in the need to coerce other people to behave in a way that somebody else thinks they should. That's the natural product that's achieved when lust for power is multiplied by the mass desire for an instant society-wide result. And this is where change agents tend to become household names for all the wrong reasons. I'll throw out David Hogg and Greta Thunberg as a couple of examples. Now, granted, they aren't exactly politicians themselves, but look what they stump for. They stump for 
public policy, government force. We're doing this policy and people need to be forced to do this. There ought to be a law. And that arrogant reliance upon force transforms something which might have been beneficial into destructive social engineering. I have a quote I want to share with you from Donald Boudreau at George Mason University. He said, no such change, no matter how well-intentioned the change agent, will be for the better. Beneficial efforts to change the world are almost always small, incremental, and performed in the voluntary sector of society. In other words, in the market, in families, or in civil society, not in or through the state. End quote. So instead of stumping for an institutional solution implemented by someone in a position of authority, we need to focus on becoming problem solvers at a purely individual level. And I want to give you an example of what this looks like, because that could seem kind of nebulous and, okay, but there's a lot of problems and I'm just one person, you know, what, what exactly am I supposed to do? And I realize this is especially hard where we've been trained to look for political solutions for everything that troubles us. So I want to share my friend Colby's experience. My friend Colby went to grab some lunch at a local burger place recently, but when he went to pay for his order, he realized he didn't have his debit card with him. I think that's something all of us can relate to. Whoops, what? I don't have my wallet. Now, when he realized his mistake, Colby told the young woman across the counter, hey, go ahead and cancel my order. But to his surprise, she insisted on putting his lunch on her tab. Now, he told me there was no hesitation on her part to buy his lunch, even though she'd never met him before. And that generosity was just part of her character. But it impressed my friend Colby so much that he went back to the restaurant a few days later and he put $40 on that young woman's tab so she could continue to help others who might be in need. See, the only thing required to solve an immediate problem here was a person who recognized the need and had enough love for her fellow man to act on it. She didn't have to solve the problem of world hunger to have played a positive role in still making the world a better place. And millions of people who share her willingness to love their fellow man do this on a daily basis, carrying out similar unacknowledged improvements in the lives of others without any recognition whatsoever. The only reason you're hearing about this is because I think this is a great example of, of someone uh, showing that even small acts of humanity can make a genuine difference and showing by example. When I talked about this with my, with my friend Colby, there were, um, we talked about this actually on my radio show um, when, when he first told me about this. And there were people who called in immediately with concerns about, well, now there are, you know, legalities we have to consider, you know, creating a tab at businesses. You know, I mean, you're getting money involved here. There's commerce. Maybe the state needs to be involved. And couldn't this encourage, you know, dependency or neediness in the community? And it, it was curious how quickly those fears came to the surface. And I can only guess this is just a reflection of the social engineering, the social conditioning, rather, that we've been subjected to, which has trained us from a very young age to think that the old, only those institutional solutions can be legitimate. But I still think that's a falsehood. I don't think that it's just, you know, that's not the place where the best solutions come from. The whole concept of loving your neighbor isn't about passively radiating good feelings at everyone who passes by you. It's about taking action on an individual level anytime we encounter another person whose need we recognize. And remember, the goal here is not recognition or accolades. Okay, we're not virtue signaling. What's at stake here is we need to meet that other person's immediate need. 
whether they need a few bucks for gas or a meal or, I don't know, maybe even just a kind word that lifts their spirits. And you'll notice none of those things requires any kind of specialized training or, or vast wealth or even superhuman powers of observation. The only thing they require is someone who recognizes the intrinsic value of each and every person and who won't allow another person to be oppressed while in your presence. That requires being able to see beyond artificial groupings or tribal designations or any of the other identity politic labels with which we pigeonhole other people. Now, I got to warn you, these quiet, selfless deeds are not going to move the needle of public awareness. You're not going to be nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize. You're probably not going to show up on the news, but they are never wasted. And you may be thinking, all right, you know, the warm fuzzies here, Brian, you know, thanks a lot. But look, I'm not even asking you to take my word or anybody else's word for it. But what I am asking you to do is just keep an open mind. In fact, keep an open mind about this concept long enough to put it to the test. And this is all I'm, I'm asking you to do. Try to recognize an immediate need in someone near you. Doesn't matter how small, doesn't even matter if you know the person or not. If you recognize someone who is in need, take some kind of personal action to help them. And then see if your view for the view of the world doesn't change for the better. I mean, I can envision there's still probably some folks shaking their heads going, no, 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 that sounds too simple. But it really is that simple. And again, I'm asking you, don't just take my word for it. Put it to the test. I'm not asking you to invest your life savings. I'm not asking you to, you know, go charging into a lion's den and, you know, rescue somebody. All you have to do is be willing to, to look at the people around you through the eyes of someone who sees the value in that person. And when you see a need, and sometimes it'll jump at you like, oh, it could be something as simple as holding the door for somebody. But take action. Help them. And just see if it doesn't improve your view of the world. Look, I know very well there's a lot going on right now that is uh, depressing, scary, alarming. I could go on. Sometimes it's really hard to keep that sense of perspective as to what really matters or, or what is most important in life. This is a very simple way to uh, recalibrate your moral compass, so to speak. We'll take a quick break. We'll be back, just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back. Once again, thank you for taking the chance. Thanks for clicking play and just seeing if this program has something to offer in way of value. I want to mention one of my sponsors here. That would be Garage Door Pros, local company to Southwest Utah, serving St. George, Utah, Cedar City, Utah, Mesquite, Nevada, Colorado City, Arizona. And bottom line is this. If you need garage doors, including insulated garage doors, commercial garage doors, or residential garage doors, these are the folks you want to talk to. It's a local company, great attention and de- to, uh, to the detail and to the service that they give their customers. They're much quicker, 
to install, service, and repair your garage doors much faster lead time than you'll find in other companies. Their doors are made in America. They really are great folks. I've even included a link in my show notes so you can check this out for yourself. GarageDoorProServices.com Again, GarageDoorProServices.com So there's, there's quite a fervor that is building in the state of Idaho over extremism. And in particular, the legacy media in Idaho is just going nuts. Now, the reason behind this is uh, apparently the Idaho GOP had their convention a couple of weeks ago. And at that convention, it was a clean sweep. The leadership of the Idaho GOP was uh, changed completely. Every incumbent member voted out. And I mean, by a pretty wide margin, new leadership was voted in. I mean, we can speculate about what, so what could have caused this and I I can tell you, based on the people that I've talked to, the most reasonable explanation is there are a lot of people who woke up to the fact that even, you know, the small government, uh, less uh, taxes, you know, more personal responsibility Republicans were still doing a lot to maintain the status quo of an ever-expanding Leviathan type of state. This particularly came out in the last couple of years with uh, the COVID response and uh, basically a a lot of uh, pretty hardcore big government policies that have been creeping into the state. Idaho has been a pretty conservative state for a long time. So a much more conservative type of leadership has now been uh, been installed, at least in the Republican Party. You should see the meltdown. That's taking place among members of the press right now. And and I mean, they I'm not kidding when I tell you that they are just absolutely on a witch hunt for extremists in Idaho. Oh, my gosh. You know, uh, everybody harkens back to I think it was the late 80s when when the Aryan nations had established, you know, a presence in northern Idaho. And so that was kind of synonymous. Well, what are you from northern Idaho to imply that somebody might be racist? Now, I'm going to tell you because I lived in Idaho during the 80s and. It never was a general thing that, oh, yeah, everybody just kind of nodded and went along with it or otherwise didn't care. No, that was never a well-accepted mainstream position. Most people in Idaho were and are still very much uh, down-to-earth, common-sense people. They're still rooted in reality as opposed to whatever, you know, the current flavor of the day of, uh, you know, Marxist nonsense is that we're supposed to be believing in. But now... With the election of Dorothy Moon as the Republican Party chair in Idaho, there is this incredible push on the part of media about how Idaho conservatives are extremely extreme. And I've got this great article from actionidaho.org. I've got a link to this in my show notes. I strongly recommend, take a look at this. I mean, the Idaho Statesman, this is the newspaper of record for the state of Idaho, has published this two-part series on white nationalism and extremism in Idaho. And it is just breathless, hyperventilating propaganda aimed at trying to to slow the political momentum of people who are tired of government putting its boot on their neck. Anybody who opposes anything that would would, uh, embrace the growth of the state and celebrate it as a good, necessary thing is considered very, very extreme. And yet the propagandists who are putting this out, and I mean, look, they're good at what they do. They're spinmeisters, they they are wordsmiths, and they are great at rhetorical sleight of hand. But when you look in context at what they expect people to believe and what they are condemning as, as extreme, it's clear that uh, there really are some extremists in Idaho, but it's not who you think it is. For example, 
The article points out here here that propagandists at the Idaho Statesman and in the national media show their radicalism in what they do as well as what they leave undone. They celebrate men dressed as sexualized women grooming children at LGBTQ plus pride parades. They condemn anyone who dissents from coronavirus lockdowns. Asking questions about anti-white critical race theories called a witch hunt. They tolerate vaccine mandates on employees crushing their long-term dreams and careers. They tolerate drug epidemics. They insist that God-denying philosophies inform all of our public life. They encourage young children to transition from one gender to another. They encourage internet mobs and cancellations. They applaud a two-tiered justice system for giving leftist crime while inflating rightist crime. By the way, the best example of this you'll see is Hunter Biden, Jussie Smollett, and uh, Alec Baldwin. Still walking the earth as free men. In the meantime, Pam Hemphill, a 60-something-year-old grandma who's a cancer patient, is sitting in federal prison for the crime of walking through the U.S. Capitol without an official invitation to be there and taking pictures. Tell me that there's not something messed up about that. They bring tens of millions of immigrants and refugees into the country, often secretly, and then surreptitiously plant them in our communities. We can presume to uh, bolster the uh, Democratic voting rolls. They celebrate declines in domestic energy production. They refuse to cover attacks on churches and pregnancy centers since Roe was overturned. They call riots peaceful protests. And as the article points out here, the leftist establishment openly hates the country as systematically racist, sexist, homophobic, unequal, polluters, etc. And then these propagandists have the gall to call those who oppose them extremists. Now, as this article from actionidaho.org says, there are plenty of people out there who see the game. And their advice is uh, conservatives can and should align with anyone, even so-called extremists, willing to oppose establishment decadence, perversity, and lies. And I kind of like how they put this. And it's been my experience that people who are willing to stand up against oppressive, tyrannical policies are always going to be maligned. So if you can see beyond the labels, well, but they called this person an extremist, guess what? If you're going to stand up against the people who want to oppress you, they're going to call you an extremist as well. The article says many are joining the coalition against leftist extremism. Some of these people hold views that are distasteful to some. Whatever. These people are allies in the fight against sexually grooming young children and corrupting the country. Perhaps some unruly folks went too far in opposing mask mandates. Whatever. The people who locked the state down for nearly a year and imposed endless mandates embraced the instruments of tyranny. Well, some people entered the Capitol building to protest electoral justice and acted irreverently. Whatever. At least they did not tolerate and reward lawless rioters who burned court buildings in the name of racialized justice. Some people outside of the mainstream view show conviction in front of Internet mobs. Good for them. They just might be the kind of allies we need to save the American way of life. The point here is that propagandists are trying to shut down conservatives with accusations of extremism. They wax nostalgic for the party of Lincoln, or they worry that haters have taken it over. There's actually a great quote from Lincoln that they use, and I'm not a big fan of Lincoln, but uh, this, this is a good quote. Lincoln said, stand with anybody that stands right. Stand with him while he is right and part with him when he goes wrong. 
So while you've got these uh, counterterrorism experts being quoted in the Idaho Statesman or the Homeland Security Department being quoted or Southern Poverty Law Center and other professional alarmists, it's just name-calling. As the article here points out, old extremists burn crosses. The new ones wear suits and ties and, and you know, are, are uh, supposedly targeting curriculum in schools and such. It's a difficult challenge. But the bottom line is, unless you want to live under their kind of tyranny, you got to be willing to stand up. And that might mean that sometimes you're going to have to stand with people with whom you do not agree entirely, but who nonetheless are making a principled stand against oppression. I got a link to this article. I really think you'll uh, find it worthwhile. Check it out in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. And we'll be right back. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Once again, thanks for giving a listen. And I'd like to point out that lifesavingfood.com is one of my sponsors. I would encourage you take a look at their uh, their wares, their food storage and emergency preparedness supplies. You never know, they might come in handy someday, you know, should, uh, I don't know, interesting times ever find us. Assuming that you don't see the times we're living in as interesting right at the moment. I've got a link in my show notes. Again, that's lifesavingfood.com. So I have to ask this, is there anything so outrageous that the corporate narrative managers won't try to sell us on it? And this is particularly true in response to, well, what exactly is causing all of these sudden deaths? If you Google sudden adult death syndrome, you're going to get some very interesting results. But this much we know, there are an awful lot of otherwise healthy people just dropping dead for one reason or another. The only thing that we're absolutely not allowed to consider is that it could have anything to do with that, uh, you know what, uh, the vaccine that was mandated and pushed so furiously on billions of people. So here we take it to another level. Got a great article here from The Good Citizen, which if you haven't subscribed to The Good Citizen Substack, you need to. This is fantastic information. And I'm going to play for you about a four-minute long clip. And I want you to pay close attention to the latest attempt at wholesale gaslighting in which uh, taking a nap magically transforms from something considered healthy and, and good. And look, it's beneficial to... Well, uh, actually, it's deadly. I mean, in fact, this may be an explanation for sudden adult death syndrome. Give a listen to this. I think you're going to be mildly surprised, and who knows, if you're awake, mildly alarmed. Catching some Z's is one way of saying you're taking a nap. And while some may dismiss you as just a lazy bones, Many experts are waking up to napping's many benefits. The University of Toronto is all about the nap. Once frowned upon, napping is not only encouraged here, but celebrated. Catching a few Z's does have its benefits. Research shows it can do everything from boosting your immune system to improving alertness. 
The latest study involving Swiss adults aged 35 to 75 also found that a daytime nap taken once or twice a week could lower the risk of heart attacks or strokes. Pilots who napped an average of just 26 minutes improved performance by 34%. And other studies link napping to better cognition, sharper memory, less frustration. Talk about the benefits of getting a nap. Number one, you have a lot more energy during the day. You're going to be more alert, more focused. You'll be able to learn better. Sleep is uh, by the brain, for the brain, and for the body. In a 24-hour work cycle where employees are often expected to work long hours, many companies have created nap-friendly spaces. Your mood will be much better. You'll find that if you have anxiety, that will be less. The head of an $8 billion company is sleeping very... his way through the afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> it's only a half hour, it's only a half hour. But sleep is a topic of study at Emory University in Atlanta. No one has the actual disease. Where Professor Dana Johnson is an epidemiologist. She says naps are okay. Just don't snooze your life away. People that are sleep deprived should definitely have a nap during the day to help them feel restored. Your memory will be better. You'll have more creativity. You'll have less of an appetite because a lack of sleep affects your blood sugars. You'll have much better exercise performance and endurance if you're getting enough sleep, either at night or adding a nap or two. There's also a study that shows that you'll have less accidents. Weeks, months later. HealthWatch, a new study shows that frequent napping is linked to a 12% higher risk of developing high blood pressure. A new study shows a potential negative link, though, between napping and your health. Researchers found a 24% higher risk of stroke. There's this new study out of China, study out of China, China, that says napping could be bad for our health. Researchers found people who nap regularly, which is like everybody in the studio, yep. well, apparently you have high, a chance of higher blood pressure and higher rates of stroke. And now there's one important note. Many of the people um, in this study who took regular naps also reported being smokers or drinking every day and having a difficult time sleeping. Uh, you know, I'm, Dr. Mike's been checking out my blood pressure. It's, yeah. been, it's been going up a little bit. Oh. Yeah. And so then I see this new study that says high blood pressure could be a, re a result of taking too many naps. If you tend to regularly nod off during the day, you could be at higher risk for high blood pressure. Our Dr. Malcolm Marshall is here now, doctor. That is an indication your sleep is not mm -hmm. high quality mm -hmm. and you're going to end up mm -hmm. at higher risk of heart attack and stroke okay. and all that. I think naps have such a bad name. Well, I can quote Ben Franklin. Up sluggard <laughs> sluggard <laughs> up sluggard sleep not there's more than time enough to sleep in the grave Ooh, <laughs> that makes you think listen I'll, I'll be i promised you i'm gonna keep i'm gonna keep you alive to 110 i promise that one year earlier but if you look at the data about 190 million people have been fully vaccinated over 65, the people who have died, are you ready for this? 6,104, give or take. And so that is a testament to the efficacy of this vaccine. Wow, that did not age well. <laughs> not at all. And as, as, the, uh, as the good citizen points out, 
Did you catch that shift? I mean, here it was just a, just a few years ago. Oh, naps are good for you, why they're healthy, why they make you more productive and so forth. And then suddenly that, that shift takes place. And that, well, this is probably what's raising people's blood pressure. It's causing heart attacks. It's causing strokes. And the good citizen says, what could possibly have changed in the last year? Well, you heard it right there in that uh, last little part of the, the audio clip. How many people have been vaccinated in that time? Now, again, I'm not suggesting that's the only reason that this is happening. But as, uh, as the good citizen points out, ah, it's probably nothing important. Just be a good citizen, leave it to the experts to figure out and go back to sleep. But before you do, don't forget to get your third booster for the upcoming election variant. It spreads darn fast and it's super sc- 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 scary if it saves just one lie. Life. <laughs> oh, man. I, you know, look, the gaslighting takes place at so many different levels, but this is just a whole different level of people trying to explain what is it that is causing otherwise healthy people, including elite athletes, to suddenly drop dead. Now, I get, I get it. We're treading into uncomfortable territory. You, like me, probably have family members who are likewise vaccinated and boosted, and we certainly, I don't want to wish this on them. I don't want to be vindicated by, well, aha! You dropped dead, honey. So uh, it looks like I was right about those stupid jabs. I don't want to see that, and I don't want to see other people bear the pain, but we can't ignore the fact that there is enough of this unexplained wave of sudden deaths that they've actually coined a name for it, sudden adult death syndrome. And I just find it very curious that the only thing we're not allowed to consider is that this in any way, in any shape or form, has something to do with an injection or multiple injections that have been the norm for people over the last year or so. In fact, a year ago was being pushed so hard that people literally were having to choose between, well, do you want to keep your job or not? This is the painful part of thinking outside the box. This is the part of questioning the narrative that uh, is uncomfortable because it takes us to some pretty uncomfortable places, including... Could there really be people that mendacious to bring that kind of harm on others? And there's a time where I would have said, ah, give them the benefit of the doubt. It's probably just, you know, incompetence or overconfidence or something like that. But the longer this goes on and the more gaslighting is attempted, the more explanations come. I mean, come on. Climate change may be the reason why people are suddenly dropping dead. Really? (laughs) That just happens to coincide with another push to uh, make sure that the government gets more of my money and more power over me to fix the climate. Just seems mighty convenient. That's all. And I get it if this sounds cynical, if it sounds like, well, gee, Brian, you really don't trust uh, a whole lot of these uh, people and institutional power. And the truth of the matter is I don't. But I think we have a pretty good track record to look at as to why they should not be trusted. I think the abuse has been right out there in the open. And maybe, I, maybe I'm the one who's in the wrong here for holding a grudge. But I can't forget the way that the unvaccinated were treated over the last year or so. It was some of the ugliest stuff that I've ever seen. And, and frankly, it was infuriating. And what infuriates me the most is I saw people, including family members, line up and go get shots that they really didn't want but knew they were probably going to need if they wanted to travel internationally or if they wanted to continue on with their education 
they still had to do it against their better judgment. I don't know about you, but something about that really stirs my sense of injustice as well as sets off some pretty big red flags for possible tyranny. In fact, why are we even saying possible? For legitimate tyranny, the real thing, genuine article. I feel better for having got this off my chest. (laughs) Thanks for letting me vent. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back. Got to give a shout out here to HSLAmmo.com. That's ammo as in ammunition. If you're going to get some ammunition, I would really encourage you, please shop with HSL. High quality, new and remanufactured ammo. All lovingly assembled by one of the greatest human beings that I have the privilege of knowing. That's my friend Spencer Worthington. I have a link to their website. You can go and check it out, see all the calibers that are in stock. But uh, I want to encourage you, consider getting some ammo, put some aside for a rainy day. It's a great store of value if you're not going to go shoot it all up. I promise you that there is always someone who will find that worthwhile. So if you're wondering about what do I do, my dollars in the bank are depreciating, or at least they're being inflated out of their purchasing power with every passing day, well, here's a store of value that uh, I think is terribly underrated. Probably should, should be a little closer to gold and silver in terms of, you know, hanging on to that value. HSLAmmo.com. All right, a couple things I want to hit on here in rapid succession. Uh, first and foremost, masks have never been about slowing the spread of coronavirus. I know that's a, the official explanation. I know that, uh, well, this study says this and this study says that. I have looked at uh, an article. Uh, this is from uh, Brownstone Institute. 150 different studies, separate, independent, peer-reviewed, legit studies, show that masks do not slow the spread of the coronavirus. Which leads me to something that I I suspected and I think has been confirmed now uh, quite well in the last two and a half years, and that is masks are a symbol of submission. This is why people in authority keep pushing for us to keep wearing them. So I'm including a link in today's show notes. This is from Ian Miller, writing for the Brownstone Institute, on how the expert narratives are collapsing. Just a couple quick excerpts. Ian Miller says, General mask mandates for most of the country have all but ended. Outside of a few fanatical true believers like Los Angeles County and entertainment industry events like Comic-Con, almost no one is mandating masks to go about daily life. But what they are doing is forcing masks back onto children in schools. Perhaps the most indefensible intervention during the pandemic, school masking has confusingly become the most prominent reoccurring mandate across the country. And while it has seemed like this inexcusable policy would mostly be limited to far left areas, the most recent announcement comes from a much more surprising city, and that would be Louisville, Kentucky. Starting uh, Monday of this week, Louisville schools require now masks at all facility locations and on buses. Joining San Diego schools, who also announced a mandate of their own recently. And incredibly, that mandate was defended by a local official who claimed, well, students who can't or don't want to wear masks just shouldn't come to school. No, she really said that. And Ian Miller's point is, this is despite the overwhelming amount of data and evidence that's accumulated over the past several years that masking is completely ineffective. 
not to mention the tremendous learning loss from virtual schooling and missed in-person education that uh, the San Diego superintendent just ignores. I'll leave you to uh, check this article out for yourself. It's, it's well-researched. There are the graphs that show you what happens with forced versus optional school masking. What kind of a difference did it make? And the, the bottom line, if you, if you look at the data, there just is no justification for continuing to mandate masks in schools. I come back to the idea, I really believe this is about teaching kids early on to be as compliant as possible and to wear the symbol of their compliance right there on their faces. Ian Miller concludes his article by pointing out that uh, we've seen this before. Hospitals are finally acknowledging that COVID is not the cause of many of the COVID-designated hospitalizations. School masking has been disproven by continued high-quality research. International locations with high compliance still aren't controlling the virus with mandates. His point is it's been clear for years that they were these experts were hopelessly incorrect, but they've continued to push for indefinite mandates, and more importantly, they've refused to admit mistakes. Narrative collapse is but a small hindrance, easily dismissed as criticism from unqualified detractors. But Ian Miller says, with fall and winter rapidly approaching, it's important to continue to dismantle their arguments and head off any upcoming potential policy interventions before they start. Amen. I hope you'll check out his article. Also, if you need some incentive to support the American rancher, I'm going to share this is some bad news for those of you who love beef. The beef supply is about to experience a very major contraction. This is an article by Andrea Widberg, published on AmericanThinker.com. Nature may be conspiring with leftists to ensure we're on a grasshopper diet. Oh boy, not a place I want to go. She says, while the news media have kept the focus on the California drought and Lake Mead's vanishing act, it turns out there's a significant drought in the Southwest, home to cattle raised for America's steaks and hamburgers. And because inflation means that ranchers cannot afford hay, they're selling their stock to the slaughterhouses. And while that might mean lower prices now, it also means there will not be cattle next year. So start looking for cricket burgers in your market in 2023 and beyond. I don't know if you saw the footage that came out, uh, I think it was last week or the week before. Miles-long lines of trucks and trailers taking cattle to market in Texas. It's, it's chilling. And, of course, this is blamed on, well, you know, we really we can't feed our cattle. There's no sense in just sitting there letting them die, so we'll take them to the slaughterhouse, sell the entire herd, and try to get what we can out of it. Of course, this is to say nothing about the tens of millions of chickens that have been slaughtered thanks to an outbreak of bird flu and, you know, preventative culling of these, uh, these flocks. So, in sum, Andrea Woodberg points out, chickens are dying in the millions, rain isn't falling, hay is too expensive, and all the cattle are being slaughtered. Chicken prices are up, but meat prices are temporarily down, a drop that will be offset by the fact that in the future there won't be any affordable chicken or meat. But the good news is there will be grasshoppers, and since uh, that's apparently what the World Economic Forum has in store for us, uh, you know, eat up, bon appetit. <laughs> no, I'm really, I'm not interested in eating bugs. And oh, by the way, here's another interesting trend that is being trotted out. If you, if you were wondering, you know, just how demonic are the people at these high levels of the World Economic Forum and other globalist elites that are trying to set the agenda for a new world, a world forged in the image of what they want to see cannibalism. I kid you not. 
they're starting to float the idea of normalizing, well, you know, people eating people, it's really not that crazy. It's actually kind of a time-honored and sacred practice. Maybe I'll talk a little bit more about that tomorrow, but uh, yeah. If you're not doing your part to really fortify yourself, your mind, and your heart against this demonic onslaught of attempts to to try to bring you and your soul to heal by those who think that uh, they were born to rule you, that's probably some strong evidence you should be looking at and considering. All right, one final thing. I'm including this in the show notes. I strongly recommend take a look at Doug Casey's latest article in uh, lewrockwell.com. Something to consider while you have the powers that be busy redefining words like recession. Well, you know, well, once upon a time, they defined a recession as, you know, two consecutive quarters in which GDP declined. But we don't do that anymore because, well, frankly, to face the facts would be to face accountability for you guys are making things worse. They can't do that. We're supposed to be in awe of them. Oh, well, yes, they always know what's right. After all, they're the experts and we're just, you know, the people. Well, Doug Casey has taken the time to lay out why the Greater Depression has begun. He's not even using the word recession. He's calling it the Greater Depression. He explains what it is. He explains why it's begun and what government should do about it. And he has some very solid recommendations. But he also points out government likely won't do any of them. I mean, he's talking things like things that government should do is allow a collapse of bankrupt entities. Because if you allow the collapse of unprofitable enterprises without changing the conditions that created the problem, the recovery is going to be even harder. But let them collapse. If you've dug yourself into a hole, you want to get out, stop digging. He also recommends deregulate. That'll lower costs. That'll make it easier for people to survive, to create businesses, to to use the market to meet people's needs. He talks about abolishing the Fed, cutting taxes 50% to start. You want to see the economy boom? That would be a great way to do it. He also recommends default on the national debt. I like his reasoning here. He says governments default all the time. So when they try to spin this, well, that's dishonorable. We keep our word. But he says, remember that they're defaulting subtly through inflation. But he says, in an outright default, the only people who get hurt are the ones who lent money to an institution that can only repay them by stealing money from others. Maybe they should be punished. He talks about disentangling and disengaging around the world. Somehow I'm thinking that carrier group that the U.S. is currently sending to Taiwan to accompany Nancy Pelosi on her visit to Taiwan. I'm thinking that's a good example of what not to do. And Doug, by the way, looks at what government will actually do, which is most likely the opposite of everything that he's recommending. Still, very informative. If nothing else, it'll show you the the stupidity of so many in positions of power and at least give you something to uh, warn yourself as to when the storm is going to intensify. This is The Brian Hyde Show.